Hello, this is Curtis Edwards, Vice President of Investor Relations at Hudson Investing. Are you ready to start building your multifamily portfolio? Kent and I are excited to announce our newest deal in Spartanburg, South Carolina. This 157-unit property offers a unique chance to acquire a B-class value-add property for just $120,000 per door. This is well below replacement costs. De-risking the deal even further is a favorable loan assumption with over six years remaining at 3.73% fixed. With 50 economic development projects underway and 70,000 jobs within a 20-minute drive, the South Carolina upstate region is primed for above-average job, population, and rent growth. Don't miss out on this exclusive deal. Find the link in the description notes to learn how you can invest. Best use of a 1031 exchange, obviously, is when you have significant capital gain and in an investment property. And that can take many forms. If you've owned a property for many years, you've likely depreciated it, right? So you may have more gain than you realize because if you depreciate the property and let's say you've held the property 15 years, well, that's going to really reduce your tax basis and increase the amount of taxation you'll pay when you sell. Welcome to Right Around Real Estate, the show about how to passively invest like a pro. On each episode, I interview real estate experts who give their top investing advice, strategies, and tools and I break down their insights into practical steps to avoid the pitfalls and make better investments. I want to help you passively invest like a pro. This is Ritter on Real Estate, and I'm your host, Kent Ritter. Hello, fellow investors. Welcome to Ritter on Real Estate, where we focus on how to passively invest like a pro. I'm your host, Kent Ritter, and today we have Alex Shandrovsky and his partner, Michael Brady. They're from Madison 1031, and they're here to talk to us today, do a deep dive into 1031 exchanges. They're going to help demystify how, as passive investors, you can leverage this great wealth building tool. So I'm really excited to have you guys on the show. This is something that I admittedly am not an expert in. You know, I haven't gone through the process myself and through any of my current deals. So I'm excited to learn right alongside with our listeners. And thank you guys for being on the show. Before we get really into the meat, I'd love for you guys just to introduce yourselves, give some of your background and help the listeners understand where you're coming from. Uh, Sure. My name is Mike Brady. By training, I am an attorney. I've been practicing law for over, it's about 26 years now, predominantly transactional work doing commercial and residential real estate transactions, corporate business sales, some internal sale goods documents, things of that nature. And got involved in 1031 exchanges right from the get-go when I first started practicing. It was one of the first projects I worked on was a 1031 exchange for a firm that I worked for. And the partner I worked for at the time said, Mike, you know, we have this great project we want you to work on. We have a client that wants to do a 1031 exchange. And I said, great, what's that? He said, I don't know. It has something to do with taxes and real estate and go hit the books and figure it out. And what I ultimately discovered was after many hours that we were not able to charge the client for was that I needed to find a good qualified intermediary to walk me and my client through this process 
of basically exchanging one property for the other because the tax rules were kind of, when you just read them, they're clear as mud until you kind of get into some of the nuances. And so I developed a proficiency in exchanges over the years. And then I actually got involved in the qualified intermediary industry in 2005 when I ran the East Coast for one of the largest companies in the industry. And I joined Madison about two years ago to uh, head up sales and marketing efforts and help some of our clients structure their complex exchanges. Thanks, Mike. I appreciate the bio. Really excited to have you here today. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for having us on. I'm looking forward to it. Absolutely. Awesome. Well, first, Ken, I really appreciate the fact you got my last name correct. That's a big step forward. Clearly appreciate that. My background is a little different. My background is that I have a small business owner. I found and ran a large catering company in Silicon Valley that serviced Google, Facebook, Airbnb, among others. And it was a social enterprise, which also hired people coming from prisons. I taught business interpretership a lot in, in maximum security prisons as well. And then transitioned from having that business to learning more about assets and capital. And when I had a chance to join Mass in 1031 and business development role, it was very exciting for me to be here. Because again, I talk to investors and those who are looking to build multi-generational wealth every single day. And I'm very, very happy and very proud that we have such a great tool that we can share with them that so many people are still not aware of. So Ken, thanks for helping people get educated about it. Absolutely. That's what the show is all about. And excited to bring, I think, such a useful topic to the viewers today. So Let's dive in and let's start at the top with what is a 1031 exchange? Mike Shaw, I'll start us on. Yeah, go ahead. So such a 1031 exchange has been on the tax code already for over 100 years. It's a, the government's way of encouraging investors to reinvest money in the real estate market. Every time you're going to be making a deal, there's always going to be a silent partner that you may not be aware of, and that's the government. Uncle Sam is investing alongside every time. And anytime your investment has appreciated the value and you're going to sell it, you're going to have to pay capital gains tax. So that tax could be up to 30 between city and state and federal. It could be more than 33% of your profits. So the government wants you to continue reinvesting money into the economy, into real estate. So they've designed this 1031 exchange tool to take the proceeds of your sale and reinvest into another investment property. And that allows you to defer your capital gains, right? So that's what the 1031 exchange in a nutshell is done in a very short period of time. That's a great explanation. So essentially, we're deferring our capital gains by continuing to invest in real estate. It's an interesting perspective about the the government incentives around that and how they drive behavior. But uh, very part of it is that it's viewed as a swap of one property for another for tax purposes, and that's really the simplest form of exchanges. If Alex and I each had a property the other liked, if we traded deeds, you know, an exchange of one property for another, there's no cash involved in that transaction, so there's no cash available to pay the taxes. Right. So this allows us both to keep our capital working in the real estate economy and hopefully each buy bigger and more profitable properties. But it's very hard to find people that have their interests aligned like that. So they actually allow you to do an exchange with a qualified intermediary, which is a service we provide. Okay. So for tax purposes, the taxpayer gives us their property, we sell it, and we take the proceeds from that sale and we buy a property from somebody else and then give that property to a taxpayer in exchange for the one they gave us. That's how it works for tax purposes, but that would be very, very cumbersome, right? We'd have four deeds on each side of the transaction. 
and one of our affiliate companies is Madison Title, their title insurance company. They would love that, right? If there were four deeds on each side of a transaction, four title policies, four sets of recording fees, transfer taxes, et cetera, et cetera. It could be four loans. It could be four loan policies, but they instead made it much simpler than that. They allow, essentially, all we need to do is take assignment of the contract of sale on each side of the transaction, and the money flows through us. So the taxpayer is not receiving money. They're receiving property. If they receive money, they have to pay taxes. If they receive property, it's tax deferred, as Alex was saying. Gotcha. So- so talk a little bit more about your guys' business as a qualified intermediary. I mean, why can't investors go out and just do this exchange themselves? Why do they need to work with a qualified intermediary? It all falls back on that swap structure, right? So without a qualified intermediary, there could not be a swap. If you just sold, received cash, then went and bought another property, you've received cash. So you haven't received like-kind property. So it dates back to the 1920s when they first introduced this concept of swaps or exchanges and the tax deferral that they've kind of stuck with that, that as long as you're not receiving cash and you're receiving property for a property, you'll be able to defer. And they added the qualified intermediary to allow flexibility to be able to sell to one person and buy from yet another person. Otherwise, you would not be able to do it. So it keeps the money out of the taxpayer's hands. We play kind of a structuring role in the transaction to ensure that the taxpayer abides by the deadlines that the IRS set up, which we can get into. And you know, and we also provide kind of a service in educating people about what they can and cannot do in 1031 exchanges, you know, what types of properties qualify, what kind of use qualifies, what are some of the things that we've seen. Sure. And definitely want to cover all that with you guys as well. But so stick with the qualified intermediary just to make sure that that it's clear to me and, and hopefully for the listeners. So you guys provide the service and that you're able to complete a transaction on each side, right? By taking money and doing the and facilitation without the investor actually receiving it. And then you're just you're just essentially passing through the properties and creating and facilitating that that swap, that trade, like you said. Correct. And we do all the documentation that's involved. You know, there has to be assignments of the contract on both sides. That's being an exchange agreement that basically restricts the taxpayer's access to the money during the exchange period. So while we hold the money, the taxpayer really can only use it for the acquisition of property. They can't change their mind midstream and say, oh, we don't want to do this. They have to wait till the exchange is actually over to get any excess funds back. And that's the role that we play. But it's important to note that the term qualified and qualified intermediary does not necessarily mean what you think it does, right? So when I first heard the term back in uh, 1994, I thought it meant that the person I was dealing with had some kind of special training, right? They went to some kind of qualified intermediary school or the, you know, the IRS instructed people on how to be qualified intermediaries. And what I discovered was that qualified really means that you are not a disqualified person, okay? So to be a qualified intermediary for any transaction, the requirement is that you cannot be an agent of the taxpayer who's doing the exchange. So that would mean anybody who's provided agent services within the prior two years prior to the exchange, such as an attorney, an accountant, a real estate broker, an investment banker or broker for the exchange, and there's some exceptions to that, or any relative of the taxpayer as well, any mother, brother, daughter, son cannot be that taxpayer's qualified intermediary and any entity in which the taxpayer or a related entity owns more than a 10% interest. So those are, anybody else could act as the qualified intermediary. So it always makes sense when you're selecting a qualified intermediary, realize that we are a largely unregulated industry. And so you want to do some homework and kind of kick the tires when you're selecting a qualified intermediary. Number one, you want to make sure they have some technical expertise, right? That they know what they're talking about. So 
we belong to a group called the Federation of Exchange Accommodators, which is sounds like it's out of Star Trek, but it's actually a <laughs> trade group for qualified intermediaries and people in 1031 exchanges. So there's they issue a certification program that you can take a proficiency test and get certified as an exchange specialist. So I've taken that test and I've been certified as an exchange specialist. We have two other certified exchange specialists on staff. We also have three attorneys working in our team as well as anywhere between 10 and 15 people to handle the day-to-day processing of the exchanges. And most importantly, you also want to ask, what do they do with the money while they're holding it? Because as an industry, we handle billions of dollars each year. So you want to make sure that the money is handled very, very safely. So we only put it into escrow accounts. Basically, it's a mass and exchange account with a sub-account bearing the taxpayer's name and tax ID number. It's a segregated account for most of our exchanges. And so it's identified as being part of the exchanges proceeds. We are also bonded and we are also insured against malpractice as you know any professional really should be. Great. So obviously 1031 exchange has to do with sale of property. Take us through when an investor would would find it advantageous to do a 1031 versus when are situations where they would not want to do a 1031. So I'll handle a few of the cases. So we have stations where people give us a call and they're said, look, I heard about the 1031 exchange and it sounds like a really excellent way of deferring capital gain tax. And what some of the cases when it's not, let's focus on some cases would not be appropriate for them to do a 1031 exchange, right? Again, our interests are in the best interest of the customer, of the investor. So you'd be surprised how many times we are encouraging them that 1031 is not the right approach for them, right? So some of the cases are, for example, well, a good one is when you don't have capital gains tax to pay. <laughs> so if the property is not appreciating value, there's no tax to defer and therefore you should not do a 1031 exchange, right? So that's a really easy example. Another example is if you have to have the 1031 exchange has to be for the intent of investment, right? So if you're looking to invest a 1031 money with a thought process, look, I want to move to Indiana. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to basically purchase a property and go live there with my 1031 funds. That's not going to work either. It has to be for investment purposes, right? So you can purchase a property, use it for investment purposes, and then two years later move in there. That's a possibility, potentially. But you don't want to do it. That cannot work, right? You cannot just do it and then move in. Another example is something that's really popular. People are thinking they could do a 1031 exchange and they can do a flip, right? So essentially, I'm going to find a property that's dilapidated. I'm going to bring in my crew, do a 1031 exchange into that property, and then fix it up. Three to six months, I watch a lot of TLC, the Fix It Up Brothers, whatever their names are. And I want to be like that guy. <laughs> I was, what, 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 Mike, what are their names? Yeah, the Property Brothers. The Property <laughs> Brothers. I want to be like the Property Brothers. Exactly. I'll do YouTube shit. It's like, I'll do a 1031. I'll do a YouTube channel at the same time. It'll be a podcast. It'll be great. Look, you're more than welcome to be a YouTube star. You're more than welcome to do that. But you are supposed to do a 1031 for the purpose of an investment property. And that typically means you have to hold it with intent of renting it out for typically two tax years. That's what we advise. So those are some cases where a 1031 would not be good. Another one, and then Mike, maybe you'll share about the when it would be advantageous, is when it's a bad deal. Right? That's a really good example of not doing 1031 exchange. When we have the individual who is coming and they're having, you know, there's someone who reached out to me recently, a few days ago, and they said, look, I'm looking for the following returns. And I said to them, I don't think the returns that you're looking for are really on the market right now. So just doing 1031 exchange without having a plan, a long-term plan of 
what kind of property you want to reinvest into, not a good idea. Don't defer taxes simply in order to get into a bad deal that's going to make you lose money. Yeah, I think that's a great point. That's talking about letting the, the tail wag the dog, right? You are constrained by the 1031 and you're so concerned about the about saving the taxes that you get into a bad deal. Ultimately, I mean, that's going to have a much worse effect on your income and your investment portfolio than just taking the hit on the taxes and, and waiting to find a good deal, right? I think that's a great point you made there. And so what are some of the, I guess, when are the times that you want to use a 1031 exchange? And and Mike, as you're talking to that, think about our listeners, a lot of which are passive investors, folks that are investing as limited partners. And so talk about it from their perspective as well, please. Sure. So the best use of a 1031 exchange, obviously, is when you have significant capital gain and in an investment property. And that can take many forms. If you've owned a property for many years, you've likely depreciated it, right? So you may have more gain than you realize because if you depreciate the property and let's say you've held the property 15 years, well, that's going to really reduce your tax basis and increase the amount of taxation you'll pay when you sell. Because many people don't realize that depreciation deduction that you get to take, which offsets a lot of your income is a very, very powerful tool for real estate investors. Well, when you sell you have to pay the piper. That depreciation gets recaptured. And on the real estate portion of that, it's typically at a rate of 25%. And if you've done a cost seg study, which our company also does, our affiliate company, Mass and Specs does, well, to the extent that you classify as personal property, well, the personal property depreciation gets recaptured at ordinary income tax rates, which are much higher than the capital gains tax rates. So when you have that kind of tax bill, if you're going to buy property anyway, then a 1031 exchange makes all the sense in the world. For somebody who's a passive investor in like a syndicated deal, you have to realize that that is a special circumstance that requires some advanced planning. So if you're in a syndicated deal, you're in an LLC, you're a limited partner, somebody else is the general partner, she's running the show, she manages the property, she brought the buyers in, and ultimately she's going to find the buyer when this project turns over. The limited partners, for them to get out, they cannot just let the whole project sell through the LLC and then take their money and do 1031 exchanges. They've got to get out of the the syndicated entity prior to closing. So typically, the structure that they use for that is what's called a drop and swap. This requires advanced planning, very important. So what you could do is have the LLC essentially whoever wants to do an exchange, they could deed out to those investors a tenant in common interest in the property. So they basically give up their membership interest in the entity and get a deeded interest in the actual property. Then as tenant in common owners, they're free to go forward and sell as individuals or through what we call disregarded entities, which are single member limited liability companies. And then they could do 1031 exchanges. The problem is that if you're doing that on the eve of closing, the question becomes, the partnership may have held the property for a very, very long time. They've held it for investment, but the partners only own the property for 10 minutes before the closing looks more like they've held it for resale rather than investment, which is kind of like the flip scenario that Alice mm-hmm. was talking about. Mm-hmm. It's kind of, a, to my mind, a ridiculous distinction because these people owned it in a different form, right? They just changed the form, but that's not the way that is seen in many purposes for tax purposes. So The IRS has challenged some of those cases in the past that when you have a short-term hold before an exchange or drop and swap, but they by and large are not fighting that fight because they've lost a couple of times. The states, however, may challenge it. So for state income tax purposes, you might have a problem. So 
California has been somewhat aggressive in challenging short-term drop and swap transactions. They, in their own tax courts, California, the state lost in their own tax courts one recently. Very kind of weird or fact-specific case, but it's something to look at. I was at a conference last year where an individual from California, I forget the actual name of the, the board, indicated that they still think that drops and swaps don't work. So they're still challenging them. And where I am in New York, they seem to be have some interest in looking at these transactions as well. So you really need some advanced planning. You need good tax and legal advisors structuring those transactions. So that's typically how your passive investor might be able to take advantage of 1031. Gotcha. So while it's possible, it's not such a direct path as if you're the owner because most passive investors don't actually own the property. They own shares in LLC, which happens to own the property. Correct. So what you're saying is you you have to leave that entity. You have to get direct ownership in the property, typically through a tenant in common. And in doing that, then you actually take the money forward through a 1031 exchange as part of the sale. But I imagine many syndicators on the other side may have an issue with creating that tenant in common relationship, right? And having to move forward with that through a sale as well. So I imagine there's a lot of things to work out needing to be, I think, very proactive upfront with both the, the sponsor of the deal. And as you said, with the tax and legal prep, because it sounds like you may need to be in that, that tenant in common position for a year or so to be safe from, as you said, being called out for a drop and swap and having your taxes challenged, essentially. Yeah, and there's no set period I could tell you is safe because you know, just there's no guidance on that. But really, the drop out of the LLC should really be a separate transaction from the sale. Ideally, you'd want to do it before you marketed the property for sale, before you found a buyer, before the contract was signed. You know, so it's an independent transaction. And that's kind of what the recent California case indicates, although their facts were not perfect by any stretch. But it gives you that kind of, there was evidence of some advanced planning years before, even though they didn't effectuate it till the eve of the closing. They had facts indicating that there were independent purposes for doing so. So yeah, I would recommend, and that's why advanced planning is important and maybe something that you want to, to discuss when you go into the syndicated investment. Right. You know, with the syndicator, we like to talk to syndicators also because it educates them and lets them know what they should look for in even structuring their transaction in the first place. Mike, just to add, and I think this would be Kent really important. So imagine uh, John; he just sold his property that he's been really toiling, he's been you know managing for a long time, and he just really wants to be a passive investor. Right? He wants to invest in a syndicator syndication. He wants to do a ten thirty one. So similar thinking process has to actually go about a syndicator receiving the funds from 1031. Mm-hmm. It's not just so simple as this individual saying, look, I don't want to be dealing with the toilets, the, ta- the trash, the tenants. I just want to be a passive investor, but I want to pay the capital gains tax before investing with Kent. Well, for Kent to be able to accept that money inside the syndication, he has to set up a tenant in common agreement in advance. Right? Because of the same thing is you can only invest the proceeds of 1031 exchange into real property. So they actually have to buy set up a, a relationship where the LLC of the syndicator owns a percentage of the property. And then the investor is going to own a tenant common interest in the property as well. Now, that creates challenges for the syndicator as well. right? As a, mm-hmm. And there's ways of how a competent CPA lawyer can, can guide a syndicator in accepting 1031 exchange money, and we can discuss some of them. But what is really key to understand is for both sides, 
that the individuals who is bringing the money into the syndications of 1031 exchange needs to do it through a tenant common and not directly invest in the LLC. And the syndicator has to set up a tenant common relationship with the investor. All of that, again, I'm just bringing it all back together to make it really, really simple, requires planning and strategy because a syndicator is not going to do that for small investments. Right. If it's just 50,000, 100,000, 150,000, typically you're looking for a person, for a syndicator to be willing to do that transaction. He has to make sure that the 1031 exchange money is significant enough in order to make that worthwhile. Mm-hmm. How common is this? Do you guys see this happening, folks going into syndications or coming out of syndications with a 1031 exchange? I wouldn't say it's common. We're seeing it more and more. It used to be the market philosophy is, well, you just can't do it, right? You know, right. We have a syndication. We're not taking any 1031 money. And if you're in our syndicate, too bad. You cannot do a 1031 exchange out of it. As people are kind of getting educated and looking a little bit more creatively and planning, there's been more opportunity. And we've been talking to a bunch of people who, syndicators, who have taken in 1031 money when it was spent worthwhile by setting up a tick structure. And we've seen a couple where you might have one or two investors who want out and bulk are just going to pay their taxes. It makes it a little bit less cumbersome. But if everybody wants out of the, the syndicate and everybody wants to exchange, it's a little messier. Although I think if you have advanced planning two years ahead and you just dissolve the LLC, it makes a lot more sense. But with a lot of the kind of more last minute stuff that we're seeing in the marketplace, it works better if it's only maybe one or two or minority interest. Gotcha. And what about a scenario where folks are already in the syndicate and they want to move from one property, one property is being sold, they want to roll it forward to the next deal. Does that fall into the guidelines of this process? Yeah, that's easy peasy. If the syndicate's staying together, you have 10 investors all in an LLC and the LLC is going to sell this property, and it's going to buy a new property, that works all day long. Partnerships are entities that any entity can really do a 1031 exchange. And we always look to see who the taxpayer is that owns the property. And partnerships, while they don't pay separate levels of taxes, they are viewed as a taxpayer because they file a partnership tax return. Gotcha. And I think this is why more and more syndicators, and at least in our experience, we speak to syndicators all the time on podcasts and in, in conversations. It's really popular, right? They want to be able to bring everybody along into the next deal with them, right? So 1031 Exchange is a great tool for that. So that's excellent. Thanks for listening to another great episode of Ritter on Real Estate. Hit the subscribe button to make sure you don't miss out on the content that will make you a better investor. Also, visit KentRitter.com for articles, videos, and tools curated just for passive investors. Until next time, this is Kent Ritter with Ritter on Real Estate. Now go out and invest like a pro.